0: Well, it's good to see you this morning. Providence, always great to sing with you and to worship with you. If you're a guest here with us, I uh, just want to say welcome. We're really glad that you've joined Providence. If you're here or at home, live stream, uh, welcome. Uh, I want to ask you also to turn with me to Psalm chapter 44. Uh, Psalm 44 is an amazing, uh, honest, uh, it's, it is a, uh, it's a very transparent uh, chapter as it relates to human experience. If you've read it already this week, uh, you know that. If you haven't, you'll soon see that. And, um, and we, uh, uh, we need transparency. We need the hope of God and God's Word. We, we all live in a world that's clearly broken. Every single week that we live, this weekend is no exception, uh, just advertises uh, uh, our need for a Savior, our need for rescue. Our culture is broken to its core, um, and it's interesting if you think about what's happening in our world, what's happening up in Virginia, uh, you know, when you see hate, um, it's the antithesis of a life with God. It's the opposite. It, 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 is, it is as far removed from Jesus as is possible. And it doesn't matter what the source or the target, that hate is simply not from God. It's fascinating when the Bible tries to explain what we were like, what life is like in the human heart when, when, when our fellowship with God is broken and we're trying to live apart from him. This is, this is the words that he uses. He says, then we ourselves were once foolish, we were once disobedient, led astray, He says we were slaves to all kinds of passions and pleasures. He says that we gave our days to malice and envy, just being mean. And then to sum it up, he says that we were hated by others and we hated one another. And ultimately what we see in the world today, when you look on Fox News or CNN or any news source and you see what's happening in the world, the fact is is what we see just one state north of us is really just a microcosm of what's happening all around the world, all around the world, every country, every tribe, every, every place in the world, whether you see it or not, that is taking place everywhere. Everywhere. And so when we see it, it doesn't matter what we are like, where we are from, what our skin looks like, that those who know God and those who love God have to do two things. We have to pity these people. And we have to pray for these people. And this is why. Because 1 John chapter 3, verse 14 says, We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life for our brothers. And so we are bound To pity people who are stuck in such hatred because it's all they can imagine. And why we pity them is because where there's that kind of hate, there's no Jesus. And where there's no Jesus, there's no joy. There's just no joy. And we need to pray for them. And ultimately, we need to be a people. When we talk about the importance of us sharing the gospel, it's not just so that when we stand before God that we've been found faithful to the commission that he's given to us. We have to share the gospel because this world, there is only one hope for the world. And that is to learn what love is. And he says, and we wouldn't even know what love is unless Jesus had come to us. And so, Providence, we have the gospel before us. It's sitting in the book in your lap. We talk about it all the time. We just sang three songs about it. That ultimately, it is Jesus Christ that is the hope of the world. And so, Providence, let's, let's pity It doesn't matter what it looks like. Let's pity the hatred that would be directed at other human beings for any reason at all. And let's pray and let's share. Because we have the power under God that leads to salvation. And it's in the gospel. It's not ourself. It's the gospel. It's been given to us. And he's entrusted it to us. And what we're doing this month is looking at a few psalms. Because the reality is sometimes... The brokenness in our own life and the brokenness in the world that leads us to question and get sour and disappointed and we look at the world and we think god why aren't you doing what we think you need to do and sometimes even the people of god who are a part of the mission of god we stop talking about god because we're disappointed with god and this is where psalm serves us so well and so if you would let's bow and let's ask for help father we need your help right now. Psalm 44 was placed in the Bible. You inspired it. You appointed it. And you preserved it for our good. And even though it is such a, um, Lord, such a difficult 26 verses to absorb and to see how you would respond to it, I pray that you would give us eyes to see That you would give us a heart to understand, and that you would give us joy in our heart as we see that ultimately Jesus is the answer. So we love you. We are so grateful, and we pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, one day, uh, I was 19 years old. I was a junior in college, and uh, I felt like God was calling me to go on a mission trip with our college through our college to Zimbabwe, and it was six weeks long. So went, and you guys have heard. Uh, some of this story um, about how he rescued me. But I want to talk about that story. I want to talk about something that happened about halfway through the trip. And that is that we were sort of on a little safari um, and we were in uh, three different vehicles. I was driving one of them. Each vehicle had about five people in it. And we're driving through the bush um, of Zimbabwe, just a beautiful land. And our, my truck uh, that I'm driving, it breaks down. So uh, and so, we stopped, and the other two trucks who were you know, who are near us, they they stopped, and so we did what 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 you do when your truck breaks down. You open up the hood, and we start messing with wires. No one really n- knows what any of them do, but we just we're just messing with stuff, and there's no solution, there's no fix, and so we look up at our missionary for 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 help. What should we do now? And and he uh, told us to do something, with, at the time was. Was, 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 was stirring to me. Now you have to understand, I was saved when I was 16. So in terms of faith years, I was a three-year-old toddler. Everything was new and exciting, you know, right? And I bumped into a lot of walls during that time spiritually and, and fell over a lot spiritually. And, and I was a toddler. And so when he said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to circle around the truck and, and I want you to believe and trust God. I want you to ask God to do a miracle that he would start this truck. I started thinking, wow, this is I hadn't had a thought of that. I was, I was, I was messing with wires still, and 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 he's wanting us to pray. And then he says this. He says, "Guys, I've seen God do this before." And to be honest with you, when he said that, it really hit a nerve because even as a three year old, I was craving some kind of sign that that he was near, that he was powerful, that that God would work in the lives of real people right here on the earth, and. And I just really began to believe. I believed he was going to do it. I started thinking, well, this must be how it works when you're a missionary. You Things break down. You circle around and you pray. And God, who cares so much about us and what we're doing, he just fixes them. And, and I'll never forget what happened. We prayed. We say amen. I got in the car and the truck and I turned the key and nothing happened. Nothing. And at that point in time, my three-year-old faith raced to fill the hole that an engine sound was supposed to fill. Total silence until the missionaries then said, you must not have had enough faith. And I just meant thinking, I was like, well, enough faith. As if you pour it into a measuring cup. And if it gets under this line, then God doesn't start the truck. If it goes over this line, then God does start the truck. And how do I believe more than I believe? I believe. I thought it was going to start. It didn't start. So how is it that I didn't have enough faith? And so as my team piled into the other team's trucks, my disappointment was palpable. It was deep. It was felt, I was quiet. And like most mission trips, this, that night had a little time for the team to share about what God did and sing a few songs. And the singing time that night felt like attending a banquet to honor a friend who had let me down. It was the first time that my disappointment was directed, that I could remember that it was directed to God himself. You could have done this. This is a small thing for you. You know that we needed help and you didn't fix our truck. I was three, and I suppose that there's some growth in my life for the things that happen, but isn't it true in your life? Like, do you ever question the ways of God, why he lets things happen the way that he lets them happen in your life, the things that he permits his pace in your life, and you maybe begin to question these things, and the fact is, is that night I had very little desire to sing or to talk about the greatness of God. And God knows that when we're in that place, that when we're doubting him, when we're disappointed in him, it makes it very, very difficult for us to come into rooms like this and sing to him and then to go out of rooms like this and tell other people about him. And that's why I believe he puts chapters like Psalm 44 in our Bible. So let's read it together. He says, "O oh God. We have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God You have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, even demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors a derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long, my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. We have not been false to your covenant. Our heart is not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. So what you see here in these 26 verses here in Psalm 44 is a spiral downward a spiral towards disappointment with God. And I want to trace what I believe are stanzas in this psalm. In fact, if you notice, in between verse three and four, in most of your Bibles, there's a little space as if someone hit enter on the keyboard in order to drop it one line lower. And then again, after verse eight and verse 16 and verse 22, there's five sections, five stanzas to the song. There's five pieces. And each piece reveals to us a deepening and darkening path to being disappointed with God and with his ways and with his plan. So what does this spiral look like? Where does it begin? Well, it begins with this, is that we hear of God's faithfulness to others. We hear of God's faithfulness to others He says in verse 1, 2, and 3, he says, We have heard what deeds you performed in our fathers' lives. Our fathers told us about this. The deeds that you performed in days of old. So all of us have had times, wherever we're at, where we've heard someone else going through maybe a similar thing, and all of a sudden God brought them out of it. God allowed them to be engaged when we've been praying for someone in our own life and for their life. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, they got engaged. Or perhaps someone got pregnant. Or perhaps someone was healed. And what happens is with these stories. These stories of God's faithfulness in other people. Is it stirs up gratitude in our own heart. For that God is working in the lives. But then, listen. It also then creates categories of hope and expectation. That God can do that. So he may do that in my own life. I want to be pregnant. She wanted to be pregnant. God helped her to get pregnant. He may help me to get pregnant. And that goes to the second. The second step in this path to being disappointed with God is that we remember God's faithfulness to us. And you see this from verses four through eight. He turns it personal. He says, but you're my king. He goes, you have saved us from our foes. In other words, God, you've done this before. And I'm asking that you would help us again. Not only have you done it to our forefathers and in past generations and to other people, but I've even seen you at work in my own life. And so I know that you can do it. And in my current circumstances, I'm asking that you would work in my life so that I can boast about it forever. And that leads to the third. And if you notice, in between the second and third, there's the word Selah. That's written sort of on the right hand side. And the word Salem means think about it. It means worship. It means pause. It means pray. It means I want you to think. And so there's a natural pause that he, he's stopping. He's saying, You know what? I've heard of your faithfulness to other people and I've seen your faithfulness in my own life. But then he remembers that he's still in a pit. And that gets into the third step towards disappointment with God. And it's this is that we feel betrayed. He's saying, God, I know that you can help because you have helped, but you won't help now. You won't come now. Why won't you come now? And so it's interesting that when we feel betrayed, it turns our tongue into a pretty sharp sword. So if you look at verse 9 to 16, it's almost hard to read. He says, you have rejected us. The psalmist is talking to God. You have rejected us. You have disgraced us. You have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back. You have made us like a sheep for slaughter. You have sold your people for just a little bit of money as if we're nothing to you. You have made us a taunt and a byword and a laughingstock to the nations. And so he feels betrayed and A lot of times in our life, when things don't work, we start thinking the same thing. God, what gives? And that takes us to the fourth stepping stone in that pathway to disappointment, and that is that we feel self-righteous. You see, someone has to be wrong here, and I know it's not me. Right? This is what he says. He goes, I'm just... uh, It's a little short-sighted. If you've ever read the Old Testament, you know this isn't true. But he says, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we've not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, yet you have broken us. You see, God gave the children of Israel a promise. Way back in Deuteronomy chapter 28, God says this. He goes, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord. And then verse seven says, the Lord will cause you enemies who rise against you to be defeated. And now the context that we read about in verse nine is that their armies have gone out and they have been defeated. And so they're looking around and they're saying, wait a minute, God, we've been faithful. So it must mean that you have been unfaithful. I think a lot of us, we look at ourselves and we say things like, sure, God, I know that I'm a sinner, but I mean, I'm a pretty good guy on average, and so I deserve your help, especially more than the next guy. And this leads to the fifth and final step that you see in verses 23 to 26, and that is that we cry out in desperation. When he starts crying out, it's, it's even hard to read if you really think about it, because he basically says, God, would you stop sleeping? Get out of bed. Put some water on your face. Get yourself alert so that you can come out and help us. Rise up. Come to our help. We need you. Redeem us. And this is Psalm 44. I want you to imagine a debate on TV. There's a moderator chair that's always facing this way, so we always see the back of their head. And over on one side, there's a podium. Over on the other side, there's a podium. And on one side is a man, this is called the psalmist, and on the other side is God. And the moderator, they flip the coin, and for the opening argument, man gets to go first. He gets to, he gets to talk first. And it's interesting that man starts, and I just want you just to imagine, right, that as this debate begins and man's opening statements, the only thing he says is he reads Psalm 44. You did this. He's, He's over here, he's pointing. You did this. You made us a laughingstock. And unlike some of the debates that we see, God respectfully, quietly listens, waiting his turn to answer the bell. When man finishes the words that you see in verse 26, and he's about to wrap up his opening statements, you assume, we all assume that the camera's going to pan over to God and allow him to answer the bell. And instead of panning over, he pans over to the moderator who turns around in his or her seat and says, thank you so much for tuning in. And suddenly the network returns to regularly scheduled programming. And every one of us are like, God, wait a minute, let the other one talk. This is Psalm 44. To me, the most puzzling and stunning thing about Psalm 44 is not man's disappointment with God, but that God would not only inspire Psalm 44 and allow Psalm 44 to sit in Scripture without any answer from him. Think about that for a second. What could it possibly mean? Like the psalm last week, we went 15 verses. And Asaph is like, this is bad, and this is bad, and this is bad. And we're waiting. Most psalms have that moment where it's like, but then I went into your sanctuary and everything was okay. And we're like, woo! Psalm 44 has nothing like that. Psalm 44 just hits you, hits you, hits you, and he says, good night. And you walk away and you're like, wait a minute, God, like talk to us, fix it. What could it possibly mean for God not only to inspire, but to allow it to end this way without any answer from Him? What is God's response to all of this? And what I will hope to do right now is to not only show you His response, but to show you how the Psalms were written and compiled so that you can find the answer for yourself when you come to other puzzling Psalms along the way. The first thing that we see God doing is this, right? How would God respond? Well, God recognizes that disappointment is part of the relationship. What could it possibly mean that God would inspire and allow this to sit in Scripture as a completed psalm with a final period, without Him coming to the bell and without Him responding? It must mean that God recognizes the disappointment that is felt in humanity when being in a relationship not only with each other but with him you see i believe that god's inspiration is affirmation that he knows how we feel isaiah chapter 55 verse 9 god confesses for as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts in other words i realize where you're at you don't have the perspective that i have you You cannot see the entire train all at once. You can only see one car passing at a time. You don't see everything that I see. My ways are so much higher than your ways that that it's beyond how high the clouds in the heavens are above the earth. All of us have had experiences where there's just disappointment. We don't necessarily blame God. We're just saying, God... I don't get it. I don't understand. Let me tell you two situations in my own life. One dramatic, one mundane, right? And sometimes it's the dramatic things that only takes one or two of those and are really, really is hard. But then those mundane disappointments that stack up, all of a sudden it's like, God, I just don't get this pattern. I understand this. So when, when we were uh, younger, right? When I had brown hair and two sons, we had a third son. And our third son, he was born with a, um, with a tumor on his spinal cord. And so, now the fact, I'm not going to go through the whole story. The fact is that he had surgery. He's doing great. He runs and walks and everything else. But the fact is, all that was threatened. But at that point in life, I started asking God, not blaming, but I was just saying, God, I read the scriptures, and your word says that you knit me together in my mother's womb so you created him like this. I'm not blaming you for that. I'm I'm, I'm saying, God, I recognize your word says that you created him, you formed him. And that was difficult for me to comprehend. God, how is it that you would allow and permit and create this to be in the womb, you, you say you knit him together and this is how you knit him. You knit him in a way that if he grows up like this, he'll never walk. Many of us in the room have gone through dramatic times in our life, whether it's abuse, whether it's sexual abuse, whether it's, whether it's cancer, whether it's a loss, a death, something, something dramatic. And you look back and you go, God, I just don't understand your ways. Then there's also times in our life when it's just stacking up mundane disappointments of why God's doing what he's doing and why things happen the way they happen on the earth. Let me tell you one, okay? Now, you know that we've hired a missions pastor and it was super grateful. I look at Phil Medlin and I say, now that's an answer to prayer, just to be totally honest with you. But you guys also know that in that process that spanned over a year, just vast numbers of hours talking to 22 different candidates in order to fill that role. Is there was one candidate that literally we got to the very, very end. He actually came and met with our elders, which is, which is really close to the end. After that, right, if everything was a go, we would have actually come to the church family and said, this is who we believe that God wants. And in that process, like, like those of you who know who I am uh, well enough, uh, like I'm, 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 I'm pretty methodical, right? Uh, I'm not a spontaneous, random kind of guy. And so there's a process and I worked through that process in particular with him in a way that's, that was thorough. Okay. I would just say it was thorough. And throughout that process, what it looked like spiritually or physically was this. I'm working, and I look up to God. Is this what you want me to do? Should I move forward? Yes, okay. And every time, like bringing other people in, having other people talk to me, and step by step by step by step, I kept saying, God, I don't want to get ahead of you. Is this a green line? Is this a green line? Is this a green line? And so there was an investment in one candidate of five months of my life, praying for him and his family, believing that step by step, this was going to take place. And then he comes, and a few days before he comes, he gets a different opportunity, and he believes that God wants him to take that opportunity. And I remember walking outside in in our neighborhood and just saying, God, I just do not understand. This makes no sense. And not only does it not make sense, I said it compromises my confidence to be able to lead a people spiritually. When I just invested everything that I know of how to find your will, I went about and did that. And it ended in a way that could have ended six months ago. If he wasn't the guy, like, I, I didn't know this guy beforehand, so it's not like I just, I, we've got to have him. I'd, My disappointment was not in not having that man. My disappointment was, God, why would you, why would you have wasted six months of my life? In fact, I remember going out and I was saying that to God. I said, I just don't get it. Why would you waste six months of my life? And I remember, like sometimes God prompts my spirit, my conscience when I'm walking, you know, with a thought, and I think, I wonder if that's from Him. But the thought came, Well, I own your life. I can waste all of it if I want to, right? You have been purchased by my blood, so. I can take every bit of it that I want and use it for anything that I want. But I knew that. And I said, well, okay, that's true, but I'm still angry, right? I'm, I still feel like this was a waste. I don't understand your ways. And the fact is, is those kinds of things pile up in our life, don't they? When we pray and we're seeking the Lord's will, we're like, God, help me to understand. And what I believe is this, is why Psalm 44 is sitting in our Bible is because God knows disappointment is part of every relationship where at least one sinner is involved. I think when you get to heaven, we won't experience this because there'll be no sinner in that relationship. But whether it's two sinners, like a marriage or friendship here on the earth, or one sinner where we relate to God, there is always a measure of disappointment. And that's a part of having a relationship with someone, not understanding, not being able to process and see why they're doing what they're doing and when they're doing it and how they're doing it. I just don't understand all this. And perhaps the most stunning example of this truth comes when Jesus is hanging on a cross after he's lived a perfect life, but then he takes our sin upon himself. He's now owning our sin. He became sin for us. And there on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you what? Forsaken me. Why have you forsaken me? Now there's no doubt that Jesus was fulfilling Psalm chapter 22 verse one, but surely, At that moment, he wasn't sitting there on the cross thinking, you know what, that that psalm needs to be quoted right now. He was feeling abandoned. He was feeling lonely. He was feeling disappointed. He was feeling forsaken by God. And so he says it, God, why have you forsaken me the first time? He, owning sin, knowing sin, becoming sin, says, God, I don't like what's happening right now. I don't like the separation that I feel. So what do we do with this? The application is this. Let's cry out to God in our disappointment. Let's cry out to God in our disappointment. The fact that he recognizes it and then gives us prayer um, is is a profound gift. In Providence, I want you to know that no matter how strong our disappointment may be, It is never a license to reject God, to accuse God, or to rebel against God. I would encourage you never to punish God by sinning. Sometimes we do that. We don't understand his ways. We're disappointed with him. We say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sin. I'm going to go get drunk. I'm going to go look at something I know I shouldn't look at. Listen, God is never punished in that. It is you and your relationships here on the earth that are always punished when we, not understanding the ways of God, say, I'm going to respond by sinning against you. It's never the answer. Now, I would encourage you to convert your disappointment into fuel that cries out to him. You see, guys, you can cry out to God in strong disappointment, confessing your confusion and disappointment without sinning. You can say, God, it's not just why would you do that? Sometimes I say, God, would you help me to understand why you did that? You're not wrong in it. Would you just help me to understand why? See, I think the ultimate beauty of Psalm 44, if there is one, is that the man is still crying out to God. He doesn't understand what's happening, but his face is Godward. And that gets to the second thing. Right, Isn't that as is that God reminds us of his loving rescue? Why would he allow this to sit in scripture unanswered? And why, what would he say to it? I think he would say to us, I want to remind you of my loving rescue. You see the very last sentence, verse 26. It says, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Now the psalmist is using words here that are, that are deep and they are wide. You see, God's steadfast love is the fuel that leads him to make a covenant with people to rescue them and then to keep them forever in spite of our sin. There's a lot of different kinds of love in the Bible. But when he says steadfast love, what he's talking about is covenant love. It's unfailing love. It's the kind of love that says, I'm going to make a covenant with you to enter into a relationship with me. There's going to be stipulations on both sides to stay in that relationship. I am going to be faithful to my end of all of those stipulations and I'm going to be faithful for you also. This is what covenant steadfast love is. And so what the psalmist is saying, this is hundreds of years before Jesus Christ came to the earth, is this this. This idea of the Messiah has been birthed in his people from God speaking all the way back in the garden when sin entered into the world. He's saying, listen, it's true, sin messed things up, but I promise you, I am going to have someone born. A rescuer will be born seed of woman who will crush the head of evil and will restore people back into a right relationship with me. And that was the first seed of steadfast love. This is what I'm going to do. And the psalmist in the midst of his current crisis, where his army has gone out and has been defeated, he's looking and he's saying, God, yeah, it's Really, really great. It'd be great like to be saved in this situation, but ultimately, I want a deeper solution. And this is what he's appealing to. You see, instead of him looking and saying, God, here we are in this little situation. Forget the Messiah. Forget salvation. Forget ultimate rescue. We simply want to be saved right now. Would you throw out of heaven... One of those little life rafts, one of those little circles that you can hold on to when we're sitting in the sea. Instead, what he says, no, 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 I need you to send me the ultimate rescue ship. This, this is what I want. I don't want the little, little, little circle out. I want the Coast Guard. I need the rescuer that's going to not just give me something to tread water, that's going to take me out of the water. This is what he's praying for at the very end. When he says, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Pay the purchase price. That's what redeem means. Would you pay the purchase price for my life, for our lives, so that we can be restored into a relationship? And when you do all of that according or for the sake of your covenant love for your people. And what's amazing is the compilers of the Psalms strategically place Psalm 44 in a place to help us navigate our steps when we're disappointed with God. You see, Psalm 44 is obviously after Psalm 42 and 43, but it's before Psalm 45. So I want to trace all four of these psalms, okay? In your Bible, look at Psalm 42. In Psalm 42, right before it, it says book two. This is the first psalm in the second book. There's five books in the psalms. And notice who it's written by, the sons of Korah. These sons of Korah, they wrote all four of these psalms. In fact, they even wrote more than that. But in Psalm 42, what it says is this. He says, the world is broken and our soul is absolutely shaken. And the solution is the hope in God. So look at it. Psalm chapter 42, verse verse two. He says, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. He's longing. And then he he has a problem. He says, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Then he gets to the refrain. Look at verse five. He says, why are you cast down on my soul. Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He goes back into his problem, and then he says that refrain again in verse 11. Now look at chapter 43. He starts, and again, he's still in a problem. He says, vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. But look at the very end. Last sentence of chapter 43, he says it again. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And so what you find in Psalm 42 and 43 is this. The world is broken. My soul is shaken. And yet when this is happening, what I'm supposed to do is to hope in God. Then you get to chapter 44, which is our psalm. I'm not going to read all that, but what... what we heard, right, is that the world is broken, my soul is shaken, and one thing we're supposed to do in response to that is to pray, rise up, O God. And so in 42 and 43, it's hope in God. In 44, it's rise up, O God. Now, what's 45? And in chapter 45, all of a sudden, we're introduced to this king, this eternal king. Verse one says, my heart overflows with a pleasant theme. I address my verses to the king. Look at verse two. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Verse four says, in your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. But then look what it says in verse six. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, when you turn, and you don't have to do it right now, but if you turn to Hebrews chapter one, Hebrews chapter one, verses eight and nine, you find a direct quote from Psalm 45, verse six and seven, and it's, directed to jesus christ what he's saying is this is that jesus christ is the king of psalm 45 he is the one who has tread the path in order to bring about strength and meekness and justice and equity and righteousness on the earth and this king jesus christ he's his throne is forever and ever and ever and so when you look at psalm 45 what you're supposed to see is that the king will rescue and rule forever What is our response? It's to rest in God. It's to rest in God. And so here's the point, Providence. As we ask God to rise up in our circumstances that are broken, we are to hope in his help and we are to rest in his king. And if there's any confusion of who the king is, it is Jesus Christ. When you think about the verses that we read about, where the psalmist is accusing God, right? You have rejected and you have disgraced us. Ultimately, providence, Jesus was rejected. Jesus was disgraced. Jesus was made the sheep for slaughter. Jesus was sold for a trifle, 30 pieces of silver. Shame covered the face of Jesus when he died on a cross for our sin. And then he was buried in a grave and he rose from the dead. Why did he do all this? To redeem us for the sake of his steadfast love. So Providence, let's fortify our hope and rest by rehearsing the gospel. When you're in the pit and you're asking God to rise up, you need hope and you need rest. The only way you're going to find that is to rehearse the gospel to yourself. I want you to think about this. If God would strategically orchestrate and sovereignly determine an infinite number of human experiences through history to accomplish his rescue mission that brings us eternal God, then we can trust him. Think about the story. All the people, they went through pits and valleys. In the story that leads to Jesus, the barrenness and the death and the bereaved and the lonely and the sinful and the idolatrous and the immoral, all these normal people experiencing normal problems, just like you and me, that throughout their life, they're saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? And God made them the storyline that brings us the messiah then don't we also think that our mundane and dramatic disappointments also lead to something in God's sovereign design that is, our, that, that is for our good? When you need hope and rest, rehearse the history of the gospel to your own heart. And that gets to the last thing is this, is what do we do? What happens to our heart when we do this? And it's number three, and that's God restores our joy to speak of his love. Look at the very last verse of chapter 45, verse 17. After he talks about the king, he says this, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. This is the same God guy who did not want to be talking. He did not want to be singing. He was soured by disappointment. All of a sudden he sees the king and God transform and restores the joy in his own heart where he says, with my life, with my life, I am going to see to it that your name is remembered. I am going to cause your name to be remembered in my neighborhood. I'm going to cause your name to be loved and remembered in the nations. See, who is it that shares the gospel with their neighbors? And who is it that gets on an airplane with the gospel to go to cities and other countries in order to share the gospel that they've never heard? It's real people with real disappointments that they have taken to a real cross of Jesus Christ. That's who goes. That's who goes. And we can go. So Providence, let's cause his name to be remembered. The people in this broken world, they need to hear this good news. If there is no Psalm 45, if there's no king of Psalm 45, then all we have is Psalm 44. But Jesus did come, and he did redeem us for the sake of his love. This is the only hope for the sick and the dying and the bereaved and the depressed. They need Jesus. So let's cause his name to be remembered. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we acknowledge you and we come to you. And even as we think about how to read these psalms, we need your help to see how they were compiled to tell the story. We pray, I pray, God, for us as a church family, you would help us to grow wise in the way that we read these psalms. That you would help us to see how themes carry from one chapter to the next in order to give clarity to the brokenness and the hurt that people experience. And I pray for us as a people, God, that you would move in our lives. We confess to you a confusion. We confess to you, God, that even some of us this morning are disappointed in your pace and what you have permitted in our life, your plan for our life. And so, God, would you help us to see, would you help us as we think of the gospel to see that you are ultimately for our good and that if you were to use disappointments in the lives of other people in order to bring about the Messiah, then we can trust that you can use the disappointments in our own life to bring about good ends as well. So we love you, we need you. And as we give to you now, God, we give to you to cause your name to be remembered to the ends of the earth. So help us to be generous and thankful. And would you m- mobilize the gospel, to move forward. Would you mobilize people through these resources? Lord, to take the good news to the ends of the earth, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.